Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you today from London. On the program. Ukraine's counteroffensive has officially begun. What do the early signs reveal? And what exactly is at stake? I'll ask an all-star panel. Also, the electric vehicle revolution. Europe and China are far ahead of America. Can the US catch up? I'll talk to Bill Ford the executive chair of the Ford Motor Company. Finally, the Supreme Court. It's supposed to be the final check, the ultimate safeguard to preserve America's bedrock values. But is it now itself a danger to democracy? A new book says just that. But first, here's my take. If you were surprised by Saudi Arabia's de facto takeover of professional golf, get ready for many more such announcements in the months and years to come. The rise of the Gulf, and particularly Saudi Arabia, is already reshaping the Middle East, but it will also have powerful consequences across the world. A quick quiz. What was the world's fastest growing large economy last year? If you guessed India or China or any of the Asian tigers, you're wrong. The answer is, of course, Saudi Arabia, which clocked in at 8.7%. Kuwait and the United Arab Emirates registered heady growth as well. What explains the boom? Well, despite what many hope for, the world continues to be heavily dependent on fossil fuels. The Ukraine war and sanctions against Russia have reduced Moscow's importance in global oil and gas markets. In addition, two of the world's other major oil-producing countries, Iran and Venezuela, are also under sanctions and have old and decaying oil infrastructure. America produces lots of oil and gas, but still imports large quantities. As a result, the world is now utterly reliant on a handful of countries in the Persian Gulf as steady and reliable suppliers of oil and gas. These conditions will likely continue over the next decade. And if they do, the Gulf will see one of the largest inflows of wealth in history. Already, the four main sovereign wealth funds of these countries have reportedly accumulated almost $3 trillion in assets, an increase of 42% over the past two years. 
Saudi Arabia expects that its main investment vehicle, the Public Investment Fund, will have more than $2 trillion by 2030, making it the world's largest. For the foreseeable future, these will be the most significant pools of capital on the planet. The economic consequences of this wealth are all around us. Saudi Arabia has, in effect, bought the professional golf business. In January, Bloomberg reported that the kingdom sought to buy the Formula One racing franchise for over $20 billion. It lured perhaps the world's most famous soccer star, Cristiano Ronaldo, to play for one of its teams for a reported $200 million a year. It is making huge investments in the online gaming industry, hoping to become a major player in that space. Look around at prestigious sports teams, luxury hotels in Europe, and storied brands, and you might see behind them Gulf Arab owners. As one Gulf minister said to me, we've built lots of infrastructure in our countries. What's coming in now is cash to invest. This surge of wealth has reshaped the Middle East. The once dominant, large, and historically significant players in the region, Egypt, Iraq, Syria, are for various reasons of poverty, division, and dysfunction, unable to play leading roles. The Gulf is where the action is. Saudi Arabia in particular has made a huge strategic shift in its foreign policy. In his early years in power, the kingdom's de facto ruler, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, used his country's wealth in a crude and overbearing way. He tried in various ways to pressure or topple the regimes in Qatar, Lebanon and Jordan, while waging a hot war in Yemen and a cold war with Iran, none of which bore any fruit. The 2018 murder of Jamal Khashoggi also occurred in this period. In the last few years, by contrast, he appears to have matured, mending ties with Qatar and Jordan, re-establishing diplomatic relations with Iran, and actively seeking a peace deal in Yemen. The Gulf states are all deepening their relations with China, which is now the region's largest customer. In 2001, Saudi Arabia's trade with the Middle Kingdom was just over $4 billion, about one-tenth of its trade with the West. In 2021, it was about $87 billion, more than the U.S. and the E.U. combined. Economic ties are growing rapidly, and the Washington Post even reports that China has continued construction on a suspected military facility in the UAE. Saudi Arabia and the Gulf are not seeking a divorce with the United States. They want close economic ties with China and close security ties with America. They want to be able to deal freely with everyone, including Russia. If you want to see where Russians have gone to escape Western sanctions, visit Dubai, where you will hear more Russian than Arabic at some hotels. They have growing ties with India and are even building new links with Israel. Most countries would like to pursue a policy that allows them to freelance, choosing friends in the West and East as suits their interests. If MBS continues down the path he is on now, Saudi Arabia for sure will likely be able to manage this balancing act. Go to CNN.com Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Last
last weekend, the world got its first official indication that the much-discussed, much-anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive had actually begun. When President Zelensky at a press conference alongside Canadian PM Trudeau talked about counteroffensive actions that were taking place. So, how big are the stakes here and what can we expect from the Ukrainian forces? Can they take back their territories? Joining me now are Anne Applebaum and Oresa Lutsevich. Anne is a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and a staff writer for The Atlantic. Oresa is the head of the Ukraine Forum at Chatham House. Um, Anne, you say that the purpose, the, the real purpose behind this Ukrainian counteroffensive, uh, or the larger purpose, is not purely military. Explain what you mean. The real purpose of the counteroffensive is to create a political change in Russia, by which I don't mean regime change. Uh, there has to be a moment when the Russians decide that the war is not worth fighting anymore, and they take their troops and leave. Um, it's the kind of decision that the French made in 1962 when they decided to pull out of Algeria. You know, the British made that decision a number of times um, in their empire. There's a moment when the empire ends. Um, and the Ukrainians will use both military tactics as well as political tactics to convince the Russians to leave. I remember the war is over when the Russians go home. They don't have to, the Ukrainians don't have to occupy Moscow. They don't have to get anybody to surrender. Um, all they need to do is get them to leave. And so what you're going to see over the next few weeks is both, you know, the kinds of shaping operations we see now, attempts to cut off railway links and so on. You may see some bigger military moves, but you'll also see um, more events like the, this uh, small group of Russians who went over the border, free Russian forces calling themselves. You'll see drones in Moscow and other Russian cities. That's also part of persuading the Russians to, to go home. I think that's a, one, that's a very good way to think about it, because I, I, and I think the analogy with France and Algeria is exactly right, which is the French tried and tried, and at some point they realized, after by some estimates killing one million Algerians, that the Algerians were just not going to, you know, they were going to get their independence. Right. And, and they just weren't French. Right. You know, I mean, it wasn't going to be part of an empire. And the Ukrainians at some point need to convince the Russians that they're not Russians. They won't be, they won't ever be. Trying to murder lots of them in order to persuade them to become Russian isn't going to work. You know, it seems like right now it's these shaping operations, as, as Anne was saying. Um, do we have a sense as to whether, you know, there are a lot of military analysts who say, look, the thing to do is to put pressure in the southeast so that you start threatening Crimea. Is that what would make the Russians, in your view, you know, feel like, okay, this is, this is getting very dangerous. The stakes are now very high. Well, Ukrainians remain very resolute to keep fighting. Nobody wants to give up any territory to Russia, including Crimea. So what we see now is society backing this military effort to actually achieve a collapse of the Russian front. I don't think Russians will be very much willing to pack and go. I think they really have to be defeated. And the Russian senior leadership and political elite will have to understand that this is just costing too much. And what we're seeing right now, even what President Zelensky announced as the start of the counteroffensive, the main battlefield... Uh, battalions that were prepared, over 40,000 men, they have not been deployed yet. They are still in the um, right. home front, in the bases, gearing up. Russians are really nervous because Ukrainians have capabilities now that Russians don't. Uh, and when you, we think about this at a broader level, the Ukrainians have been amazing into their bravery. They've been incredibly good fighters and they've been, you know, the skill is amazing. But 
I think all of us do think in the, in the back of our minds, but Russia is so big. Um, it has so many people. Uh, Putin could call up another mobilization. They, you know, the military budget before, uh, obviously, Western aid, which changes the whole thing, but was the Russian budget was 10 times the Ukrainian budget. Do the Russians have this capacity to just take the pain and put more troops through the meat grinder and just keep going? Well, as I said, one of the things the Ukrainians are trying to do is to convince them that that won't happen. Um, but there's also some diplomacy about that. So why is the U.S. giving Ukraine F-16s, which has now been announced? Um, why did the Germans finally decide to give Ukraine tanks? Um, of course, there are military reasons for that, but those are also signs to Russia that we aren't going to stop. In other words, you can keep your war going, and we are also going to keep the war going. Um, and so the U.S. and Europe have both been sending signals saying that they too are prepared for a long conflict. Um, so yes, there is a kind of psychological um, competition going on where the Russians are going to say, We're, we'll stay here forever, and the West is saying, um, so will we. <laughs> so will we. <laughs> Um, and, and then I think is the, um, you know, that's the, that's the thing to watch, is that kind of psychological battle. You mentioned Crimea particularly. Um, you know, lots of people outside, from Elon Musk to, you know, at various points, various European statesmen have said, look, Crimea should go back to Russia. Um, you, or, the, or that the Russian possession of it is... Is, is appropriate given that it was originally Russian and Khrushchev gave it to, to Ukraine in 1954. You're saying Ukrainians will not, will not accept that idea. Well, first of all, Putin made one of the largest strategic mistakes by annexing more Ukrainian territory in September of last year. He annexed uh, illegally, on paper actually, for Ukrainian regions, which equalizes them now to Crimea. Yeah, yeah. Crimea is not special anymore. It's as much belongs to Ukraine as Zaporizhia or Donetsk. And there was no, of course, there is concern about escalation uh, over the military campaign in Crimea. But, you know, it has already started. The Black Sea is very much the front line of this war. Remember the downing of the, uh, the, the flagship Moskva that is now at the bottom of the Black Sea, the Snake Island, the attack on the bridge. So, in a way, the, this war in 2014 started with Crimea. And this war must end with Crimea being resolved. Stay with us. Next on GPS, President Putin on Friday said Russia has started transferring tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus, Ukraine's neighbor to the north. He also made yet another threat to use nukes, saying he would do it if there was a threat to Russia's existence. We'll discuss in a moment. And we are back with Anne Applebaum of The Atlantic and Chatham House's Oresia Lutsevich. Um, what, what do you make of uh, Putin and the nuclear issue? It's a very serious issue. I mean, because I don't think we have ever faced this kind of a war where a nuclear state, the member of P5, attacked the country that gave up nuclear weapons and where other P5 members guaranteed Ukrainian territorial integrity and sovereignty. And to be honest, we have to confess that, of course, we state that nuclear blackmail is not working, but the West, Washington, and other capitals were self-deterring in providing that much-needed military assistance to Ukraine. That is why Ukrainians are paying very high price 
for maintaining that front line, almost like clenching their teeth, waiting for the time when the West will understand that honestly, Russian troops must be defeated on Ukrainian territory. And, and this is where Putin has the upper hand with this nuclear saber rattling that he keeps using from day two, I think, of this war. It's a serious issue. And you've written this fantastic cover story for The Atlantic on the counteroffensive. But before that, you spent some time with Zelensky. Um, is it your sense that he is now, I mean, he has rallied the world extraordinarily. Is he now directing military operations? Is that being done by uh, Zaluzhny, the general in charge? Um, you know, how should we think about this? Who's, who is going to run this counteroffensive? So he's, he's said from the beginning that he's not a military commander. And as far as I know, he doesn't try to preempt that role. Um, but there are political considerations to any military offensive, you know, how it should be conducted, what should its purpose be, um, you know, what, what role, for example, do those free Russian forces play, what role does Belarus play, and I, I'm, I think he has a, has a large role in that. So, so you know, it's, it's a, because it's both a military and a political project, I, I think he's got a role. What, what was your sense of, you know, his mood, the circle around him, decision-making? They're very self-confident now. Um, it's, you know, it's funny. I saw him right at the beginning of the war. Um, we, we went in April 2022, right after the Russians had left Kiev, and then we went back essentially a year later. Um, and it was a very transformed experience. You know, he's now surrounded by much more professional people. You know, there isn't this sense of emergency. Um, they are, you know, they seem much more in control of, you know, their, their economic ideas, their contacts with the world. Um, it's a, it's sort of more, it, it doesn't feel like an emergency that's, everything's about to fall apart at any minute. Um, so he's, he's changed in that way. I mean, I think fundamentally he hasn't changed, though, in that um, he still has an emotional belief in um, the, you know, that the Ukrainians can win, that if he's able to galvanize them and galvanize Ukraine's partners, that they can work together. Um, and he's still very good at linking Ukraine and its trauma um, to the broader problems of democracy in the world. Um, he's, he, they've made a big effort to get um, African and Latin American politicians and journalists to, to Kiev. Um, they, you know, they understand their position in the world, and they're, you know, they're still doing the same kind of outreach they've been doing since the beginning of the war. If, I was just in Kiev two weeks ago, and it's quite interesting. As I was inside the office of the president meeting his team, it felt very special that, you know, the core of Ukrainian state has been preserved, that it's functional, that it has a vision, vision for Ukraine's role in the Euro-Atlantic architecture of security, vision for the whole world, how we in the future avoid the similar uh, aggression. And also it was right after the Hiroshima summit, and it was the, the place where really Ukraine plays global Ukraine is leading on a global conversation, not just a conversation within Europe or just transatlantic community. And I think it's, it's uh, something that this war actually allowed Ukraine to come into the forefront of really global conversation. You, you are just back from Ukraine and you have this terrific report for Chatham House in which you talk about, it seems to me, this very important issue, which is the, the rebuilding of Ukraine. You don't mean just the, the economic rebuilding. But the, the democratic rebuilding, I mean, Ukraine has, was famously very corrupt and, and dysfunctional. Um, do you think that that is, you know, that people are energized about that? Because right now, in effect, Ukraine is under martial law because they, they have to fight this war. But is there a, a determination to, you know, to make sure that 
that it reforms and democratizes fully and, and all that? Well, absolutely. I met a lot of representatives from civil society, and we've run a survey for that report where we've asked people, what is the main added value of this recovery other than infrastructure and bridges and roads? And they say it's about modernization of institutions. So Ukrainians themselves are mature enough to understand that if it's well organized, if it's well over, if there's good oversight, and if there's good participation of citizens and communities, this will have this transformative process for Ukraine, that it will allow European integration to move faster, it will allow rule of law to progress, and it will allow Ukraine to build trust. Ukrainians are very hopeful, I will tell you. They clearly, even under all those circumstances, see bright future for the country as part of European Union. On that hope... Um, Thank you both. That was terrific. Next on GPS, the global race for the next big car market, which is electric vehicles. I will talk to Bill Ford, the executive chairman of the Ford Motor Company, about how the U.S. can keep up with the European Union and China. President Biden said last year's Inflation Reduction Act represented the largest investment in clean energy and American manufacturing in history. It's easy to dismiss such rhetoric as political bluster, but his predictions about the IRA may actually come true. Companies have announced billions of dollars of investment in factories for solar panels, wind turbines, batteries. The batteries made in those plants could power as many as 13 million electric vehicles per year. I wanted to talk about it with Bill Ford, executive chair of the Ford Motor Company, and the great-grandson of the company's founder, Henry Ford. The elder Ford, of course, changed American manufacturing forever over a century ago by literally inventing the assembly line. Bill Ford, pleasure to have you on. Well, thank you, Fareed. It's great to be here. So let me ask you, a lot of people are looking at uh, Joe Biden's IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, which really is a series of tax credits, subsidies, uh, incentives, for a transition to a green economy. And they say this is going to be mammoth. This is going to be one of these sea changes in in America, in American industry. And at the the tip of the spear is the electric vehicle revolution. So for you looking at it uh, from your vantage point, what does it look like? And is that kind of characterization accurate? I mean, yeah, it's a big change, um, and but we need it. We need to. Um, the the rest of the world is moving faster than we are. Uh, China has moved at light speed uh, towards electrification, and Europe has moved much faster than we have. So uh, it's inevitable. It's coming, um, and frankly, it should come. But uh, the important thing, though, and this is where the IRA really is very helpful, is to help establish a uh, manufacturing base in America. Um, you know, right now, the technology largely is outside of America, and a lot of it's being imported. But um, we feel it's really important, and I think the administration does as well, to build an American supply base uh, as we transition from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles. But t- talk to me about that uh, local supply uh, base, because you've gotten into a little trouble uh, with some senators like Marco Rubio, because you're building a battery facility in Michigan. Uh, but in order to do it and in order to use the most cutting-edge technology, you're partnering with a Chinese company. So, I mean, inevitably, there is going to have to be some of this kind of partnering. Right? No question. And first of all, 
Um, it's a wholly owned Ford facility. There'll be our employees. Um, and all we're doing is licensing the technology. That's it. Um, and actually, it's exactly what the IRA was set up to do because um, we're localizing production in America. Our engineers will be working with that technology, integrating it into our vehicles. So we will learn that technology. The, we'll understand how, in this case, CATL um, not only makes the, the batteries, but also you know, prepares them to be integrated into the vehicle. That's really important that our engineers gain that knowledge so we can eventually do it ourselves. When you hear people talk about the uh, the, the men build in America part of it, there are many uh, people, economists, who criticize it, saying, "Look, what you're going to end up doing is you're going to massively raise costs if everything has to be manufactured in America. You're not taking advantage of global supply chains, global manufacturing, the fact that you can source things from all over the world in order to make something." The famous example is often given that if the iPhone was made in America, everything was made in America, it would cost four times as much, I think, is the estimate as it does now. What do you say to that? I say make, making things in America matters. And if we outsource it all, we're not going to have a strong economy. That's for sure. The other thing is the multiplier effect of a manufacturing job um, is much greater than any other part of the um, economy. Other countries know this, and that's why they're so anxious to get the auto jobs in their countries. But when you look at this cost issue, um, is this part of what's going on with the EVs, with the electric vehicles? Because you lose money. Well, sure we Even do. though you're making a lot, you're, you're, on each car you lose money. We do now. But it's like all new technology. Once you start to come down the cost curve you know, and you start climbing up the, the production curve, the cost will come down. And, and they're coming down, even as we're sitting here. Uh, and with each generation, they'll get better and better, and the batteries will get smaller and smaller and more efficient. Um, and you know, and so I, 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 you could look at almost any other industry that's adopted new technology. The early days typically were loss leaders, um, and things were expensive. But once the technology ramped up, uh, costs started to come come down quite dramatically, and we see that happening here too. When you look out at the the, the future of the American economy right now, with all this transition taking place with the infrastructure bill, uh, which is, you know, a, 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 the largest in at least 20, 25 years. Uh, how do you feel about the American economy? Well, I mean, I, I think there's there's a lot we can be happy with. And um, but, you know, we, we, we have, I think, too much debt as a country. Um, yes, we just raised the debt ceiling, but that's kind of kicking it the can down the road. Um, and I, and I think we, you know, and, and China owns a lot of our debt, uh, which is worrisome, I think, from a national security standpoint. But I think a lot of good things also have been done. Um, now, are we headed into a recession? I don't know. My crystal ball is pretty cloudy uh, on that one. Next up, how does Ford plan to keep up with the stiff competition in electric vehicles everywhere from the United States to China? I'll ask him about it when we come back. Kill it to save it. That's the mandate facing many automakers who have made their names and fortunes on gas-guzzling vehicles and are now trying to pivot to electric. How is that transition working out at Ford? More of my interview with Bill Ford, executive chair of the Ford Motor Company. How difficult is it to change the culture of your whole manufacturing process, which has really been an industrial process, whereas 
you know, an electric car is basically software on wheels. Right. Um, Tesla does seem to have an advantage in that it's a technology company that happens to make cars, whereas you're a car company that is trying to move up the technology value chain. Yeah, and there's actually merit to both. I mean, I think Tesla would, you know, has found that the making the car part isn't as much fun as maybe they thought it was. Um, it's difficult. And you're right, you know, we're trying to catch them now on the technology side. But I think um, you know, the, one of the things for sure is that not everybody is ready for EVs. And that's fine. We have a whole uh, incredibly uh, attractive portfolio of, of internal combustion. And we're going to have those vehicles for you know, quite some time. Because one of the questions I'm frequently asked is, well, how quickly is this going to happen? And what is the adoption rate? The short answer is we don't really know. Um, so we have a wonderful portfolio of vehicles, which, by the way, we're continuing to invest in. I was in Kentucky last week where we just launched our new Super Duty, which is the backbone of work in America, and that's an internal combustion vehicle. That vehicle doesn't lend itself today to electrification. Now, as batteries get bigger, stronger, and, and you know, more energy dense, will it someday? Yes, probably, but we're not there yet. So I think for some segments, yes, um, gasoline will still be needed. So it, it's important that we have a mix of vehicles um, and if this thing all breaks much faster than what I just described, we'll be ready. If things, if EV adoption moves faster than people uh, expect, or even at the same pace, there are many concerns about the supply chain there. Would, mm -hmm. Do we actually have the capacity to get as much lithium, as much you know, copper, as much uh, mm -hmm. of all those rare earths that you need to, to make these computers on wheels? One of the nice things about battery is uh, they are almost infinitely recyclable. So once we get the initial sort of big group out there, there's going to be a whole industry around recycling the battery because all those elements you just mentioned can be reused and reused and reused. So it's not as if we're going to have to be mining these forever. Uh, we're going to have to mine them until we get kind of a critical mass out there, and then we'll just recycle the heck out of them. And do you think that that... Are there any dangers in terms of the supply chain? You know, people worry about our access to minerals. A lot of them are in African countries. In many of those cases, the countries have signed almost exclusive deals with China. Some of those things are in China itself. Do you, do you foresee any problems in getting access to all this stuff? Look, the supply base, whether it's on the internal combustion engine or on the EV level, um, there are issues all through the supply base globally. Uh, COVID really knocked the supply base on its tail. Um, and we're still recovering from that, whether it's chips, whether it's something very prosaic uh, that you know we never thought we'd have a problem with. All of a sudden we do. But on the, on the mineral side, uh, you're right. Some of them are tougher to get than others, but they keep finding new sources too. Um, and, you know, we, the, there are new sources in this country, um, the Salton Sea out in the, the, you know, the desert in, in uh, California. Turns out that's got quite a bit of lithium uh, that's ready to be mined. But yeah, um, it, it is an issue. And of course, then there's the human rights issue on the, on the mining as well. We, you know, we are trying to be very, very, careful and mindful about the suppliers that we do business with. But some of it is it's hard to have great um, vision into some of the, you know, sub-supplier, sub-supplier, sub-supplier. But we're trying to because, uh, again, we don't want to do business like that and we won't. 
The world's biggest exporter of cars uh, today is China. Yep. Really remarkable. It's gone from essentially having no industry 15 years ago to be doing better than Japan this year. The next big phase of electric vehicles, I assume, will be Chinese EVs because they they have huge numbers there. Yes. Are you ready to compete with Chinese EVs in America? Uh, probably not quite yet. Um, we need to get ready, and we are getting ready. Uh, but you're right. I mean, they're already going to Europe, and they're growing very fast in Europe. Um, they are, um, and you mentioned the speed at which they developed. Uh, they developed very quickly. Uh, they developed them in, in, in large scale, and now they're exporting them. Um, and they're not here, but they'll come here, we think, at some point. And we need to be ready, and we're getting ready. Uh, so, I mean, we have an all-hands-on-deck, you know, we learned a lot. Uh, when I look back at when the Japanese came to America, we weren't ready. Then the Koreans came and we really weren't ready. Well, guess what? It's going to happen again and we are going to be ready this time because we're acutely aware of not what not being ready will do to us. Bill Ford, pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Fareed. Next on GPS, as the Supreme Court issues landmark end-of-term decisions, we'll ask an important question. Is the court today acting as a defender of democracy or as a threat to it? When we get back. And now for the last look. It's been about a year since Dobbs v. Jackson, when the Supreme Court voted to revoke the constitutional protection for abortion in America. And in coming days, the court will weigh in on cases that will decide everything, from the future of affirmative action in university admissions to the fate of President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan to the right of American businesses to deny services to LGBTQ Americans. I asked my next guest to put the court's prior term in perspective and tell us what we could expect in the future. Michael Waldman is the president of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU. His new book is called the supermajority, how the Supreme Court divided America. Michael Waldman, pleasure to have you on. Um, you talk about the Supreme Court as a danger to American democracy these days. Most people would have thought, particularly if you go back 20, 30 years, that the court is sort of the savior of American democracy. What do you think has changed? I think we have to rethink and understand the role the court is playing right now. It's a very unusual thing to have a Supreme Court with nine unelected justices with lifetime appointments making such big decisions every June. We only give it that kind of power because we trust it to be above politics, to act like a court. Right now, the Supreme Court is controlled is dominated by six very conservative justices, a supermajority, and they've begun to make very, very radical, extreme, uh, and activist rulings that are remaking society in basic ways. It, it poses a threat, I think, to our notions of democracy. It's changing the country in ways people are only beginning to understand, and I think it's going to lead to a pretty big backlash at, at the same time. What would you say to conservatives who say, well, look, you had the Warren Court making liberal, big, important decisions that were liberal. And why was that okay? But this is not okay. Uh, there have been times in the country's history where we need the court to 
take steps to protect equal rights, even when the political system isn't isn't interested in it. Brown v. Board of Education is is a certainly a classic example of that, and that was the beginning of the Warren Court. But the Warren Court was the only time in the country's history where the court was very activist, but actually kind of ahead of the country. And it created its own backlash, a political backlash that we're living with to this day. So, you know, what you're, what you're describing at this moment, uh, it does seem to me accurate that the court is doing things that the public in general, majorities of the public, uh, are not uh, comfortable with on abortion even on guns, which you've written a wonderful book about the, the Second Amendment, um, you know, it, it's most people don't realize that the Second Amendment did not prevent two, 200 years of gun regulation, or maybe at least a hundred, you know, certainly going back to the 1850s, um, and that it was a series of decisions, really starting with Heller, uh, Scalia's uh, opinion, that completely transformed the, the legal landscape for guns, right? right? You're exactly right. It's sort of hard to imagine, but the Supreme Court never said the Second Amendment protects an individual right to gun ownership until 2008. That was the Heller decision. But it still left room for gun laws, even though it was now seen as an individual right. Um, and uh, Justice Scalia was asked, what's the difference between you and Justice Thomas? And he said, well, I am an originalist, but I am not a nut. Justice Thomas wrote the opinion more recently, the Bruin case. And that case, one of the really extraordinary decisions at the end of the last term in June of 2022, basically said you cannot consider public safety when you're looking at whether a, 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 a gun safety law is constitutional. You can only look at history and tradition by which they mean some law from the colonial era or from the founding era. If they had that law then, then maybe we can have it now. This is a very unusual way to rule. And at the heart of all this is this idea of originalism, original intent. Uh, and you say in the book that it's fundamentally misconceived. Explain why. It, it, it's misconceived. It's really pretty new. It, it wasn't until last year that the Supreme Court really started saying, this is how we're going to make all our big rulings. It's the idea that the only legitimate way to interpret the Constitution is to ask what did it mean at the time it was ratified to the founders. The court ruled that the meaning of the Constitution is, quote, fixed. In a very literal way, what this means is that the social views, the social mores of property-owning white men from the late 1700s or maybe the 1800s has to govern us now. And it's basically whatever the justices think they can find to bolster their argument. Sometimes it's terrifying. In the Dobbs case, they actually cited, in the opinion, Justice Alito, six times a judge named Matthew Hale, who was a British judge who sentenced women to death for witchcraft. In the, in, in the 1500s, yeah. yeah, not last year. <laughs> and they understood, the founders understood, that they were creating a kind of a broad charter for a growing country, a country that would change. We have changed. We've evolved. The Constitution evolves with it. And that doesn't mean it's a misunderstanding of the Constitution. That's actually the only way to run a modern country. And so when you look at where the court is now, um, and there is a kind of partisanship on both sides now, each, each president is appointing reliably conservative or liberal judges, um, you think the solution is basically to remake the court and to, and to put in, for example, term limits? I think one of the answers 
is to understand that the Supreme Court is an institution that can be reformed, that can be fixed, just the same as Congress or the executive branch. I think, for example, that nobody should hold too much public power for too long so that an 18-year term limit uh, for justices would make sense. It's actually broadly popular with the country. I think that people are just now starting to understand the Supreme Court as a political institution needing some kind of reform. Michael Waldman, pleasure to have you on. Thank you. And thank you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Want a daily dose of Fareed and his team? Now you can get it with Fareed's Global Briefing, the newsletter that gives you the best insight and analysis on global affairs. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed to sign up. Don't forget, if you miss a show, go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my iTunes podcast. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.